Hebrews 13, and I'll begin reading at verse 10, and read through verse 16. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Remember those... Oh, that's the wrong verse. Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to Him outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Let's see the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for your blessing upon us. And we thank you again for your word and its truth, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this passage and consider this topic this evening, Lord, we just pray that you would truly lead us and guide us and give us understanding to see the truth of your word. And that our hearts truly would be set on seeking to worship you in the way that you've called us to worship. And so we would ask that you would have your blessing now upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The other correction to the bulletin here is the sermon title is Praise. The fruit of our lips. Well, it's usually one of the first things that people notice about our worship services. And it's sometimes even how people identify us. They'll say, oh, well, your church, you're the church that doesn't have music. Well, aside from the technicality that actually, yes, we do have music and we have plenty of it. We certainly know what they mean. We have no instrumental music. No piano, no organ, no guitars, no drums, and not even a stage for a praise band. And so it strikes people as a little odd. And certainly I confess that uh, the first time I sat in a worship service of a Reformed Presbyterian church, That was my certainly my reaction as well, mainly because it was so different from what I was used to. But now, after nearly 36 years of worshiping in RP churches, praising God without the aid of musical instruments seems normal, even though I acknowledge that in the broad landscape of Christian worship, it still remains very odd. So why do we worship this way? Well, we certainly don't do it with the desire to be viewed as odd or counter-Christian culture. 
No, we worship this way to strive to be faithful to what God has commanded in His Word and to offer up simple worship to God from our grace-filled hearts and from the thankful fruit of our lips through the one perfect mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we consider why we worship God the way that we do, we again begin with the regulative principle of worship. Now in this uh, communion series, this is actually the last message in our Reformed Faith and Worship series, and so you'd have to go back uh, a few communion seasons ago when we talked about the regulative principle of worship. And this biblical principle is what leads and, and guides us in our worship. And simply stated, the regulative principle is that we worship God only in the way that He has commanded in His Word. And we find this principle, for example, in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, which says, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. And so if we're going to introduce anything into the worship of God, we look for a positive command or warrant by precept or example that we find in the Scriptures. Now, of course, the great benefit of abiding by this principle is that we can worship God with a clear conscience. That is, we can worship God knowing that there's nothing we do in worship that He Himself hasn't commanded. And so our conscience isn't bound by the traditions and the innovations of men, but is fully held captive by the Word of God, which gives us freedom to worship Him as He desires. But before we look at the biblical arguments, it's important, as we did with when we considered a psalmody the last communion season, that we consider the witness and testimony of church history. Though worship today seems odd to many Christians, it wasn't always this way. In our last message, we noted that it was pretty much the widespread practice of the church for the first five centuries to sing the Psalms exclusively as opposed to singing uninspired hymns. Singing and worshiping God with musical instruments was also the, na- the norm during that same time. In fact, it even enjoyed uh, a much more unified, pra- uh, uniform practice than psalmody, that it was, a, it was more consistently applied. And so in a note, what some from this early period of church history have said about the use of instruments in worship. <coughs> Clement of Alexandria in the late 2nd century noted this, The one instrument of peace... The word alone by which we honor God is what we employ. We no longer employ the ancient psaltery and trumpet and timbrel and flute. And then John Chrysostom, one of the Greek or the Eastern Church fathers in the 4th century, said this, It was only permitted to the Jews as sacrifice was for the heaviness and grossness of their souls. God condescended to their weakness because they were lately drawn off from idols. But now, instead of organs, we may use our own bodies to praise Him with all. Instruments appertain not to Christians. And then in the 5th century, Theodoret, the bishop of Syria, said this, Simply singing is not agreeable to children. 
but singing with lifeless instruments and with dancing and clapping. On which account, the use of this kind of instruments and of others agreeable to children is removed from the songs in the churches. And there is left remaining simply singing. Now you'll note here perhaps some common themes. First, not only are instruments clearly not not employed in worship, but the description of the instrumental music in the worship of ancient Israel is likened to that which is childish and immature and inadequate. And we'll consider shortly why that that is, but really the unanimity of the early church on this issue is, is striking. In fact, the Council of Carthage in 416 declared, On the Lord's Day, let all instruments of music be silenced. But a slow, gradual shift away from the early church practice began. But only in the West. In fact, even today in Greek Orthodox churches, musical instruments are not employed in worship. But then even in the West, as the organ began to be introduced in worship, it was always met with great opposition. But then by the 15th century, the use of instruments had gained such a foothold in the church that it wouldn't let up. And then during the Reformation of the 16th century, although the the Lutheran branch of the Reformation allowed for instruments... The other branches, the Calvinist or Reformed branch, and the, even the Zwinglian and the Anabaptist branch of the Reformation returned to the practice of the early church. And so, for example, example the Reformer John Calvin, commenting on, on Psalm, 32, or Psalm 33, verse 2, which mentions the harp and the lyre, says this, I have no doubt that playing upon cymbals, touching the harp and the viol, which is so frequently mentioned in the Psalms, was a part of the education, that is, the childish instruction of the law. For even now, if believers choose to cheer themselves with musical instruments, they should. But when they frequent their sacred assemblies, musical instruments would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows of the law. And so here we find in Calvin an echo of what we saw in the early church fathers. But again, it wasn't just the Calvinists and the Reformed and the Presbyterian types that worshipped without musical instruments. Anabaptist groups like Amish and Mennonites and later Congregationalists and Baptists and Anglicans and even early Methodists all had the same practice. In fact, the founder of the Methodists and the namesake of the Wesleyan movement, John Wesley, when he was asked about his thoughts on instruments being introduced in worship, he said this, I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided they are neither heard nor seen. (laughs) So these historical references are reinforced even by the term that we use to describe non-instrumental worship, that is, a cappella, right? This Latin term came into the into uh, early use in the church and has a meaning of as in chapel. And so we sing a cappella, right? That is, we sing as they sing in chapel without musical instruments. So what happened to this practice? If it was the norm in worship in most of the Christian church, why is it 
now so odd? Well, many point to the innovations of revivalists in the mid to the late 19th century who sought to use musical instruments in their services as a way to stir up and even manipulate the emotions of worshipers and and to get them to respond to altar calls. And as people saw this as a seemingly effective way, way to assist the work of the Holy Spirit, as if the Holy Spirit needs assistance... But they saw this as a way to assist the Holy Spirit in drawing converts in these big tent revivals. Well, then they began to become more open to their use in the church in churches. But those who sought to maintain the long-standing practice of the church became more and more odd, and now all the more so as pianos and organs have given way in many churches to worship bands and stage performances. But the testimony of the regulative principle and history is clearly on the side of simple worship as in chapel, that is, without musical accompaniment. But certainly we know that scriptures and not history are the final authority in all matters of faith and life. And so what is the witness of the scriptures on this issue? In fact, some here might even raise an obvious objection. Don't the scriptures themselves, especially the Psalms, command us to worship God with the use of musical instruments? Well, again, it's certainly undeniable that instruments were used in the worship of the Old Testament saints, but it's important when we consider this question, it's important to consider how those instruments were used in the worship of Israel. Now, interestingly, before Moses, we find very little mention of musical instruments at all, let alone of their use in worship. And it wasn't until God gave Moses instructions uh, about uh, building the, the tabernacle, and he gave the people instruction as to how they were to worship God uh, once they, they built up the tabernacle, that we find the introduction of musical instruments. And the first instrument that was introduced were two silver trumpets. And we find this in Numbers chapter 10. And these two trumpets had two key purposes. The first was to basically announce to the people that it was time to gather for worship. Right? So it was kind of like a, an alarm. You know, however the song, the sound of a trumpet is. We're, we're getting ready to worship. But it was also used as a way to signal the people to break camp, that it was time to break camp, that the, they were going to be moving from one place to another. So that was one use, was more of a, an announcement was coming. But the second was this, in Numbers 10, verse 10. Also in the day of your, of your gladness, in your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months... You shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. In other words, the trumpets were to announce to the people during worship when the sacrifices were being made. And this connection between the trumpets and the sacrifices is very significant, as we'll soon see. And so the trumpets had a place in worship, and yet their purpose was very straightforward and simple. Well, it wasn't until David 
when uh, David was king of Israel, that the worship of God would be altered and expanded in two very significant ways. As God's anointed king over Israel, David introduced a song into the worship of God through the Psalms. And he also introduced many other instruments to be used in the worship of the tabernacle, and then, of course, later, the temple. And so harps and lyres, cymbals, and, of course, the trumpets were then introduced. And, of course, God, through the Spirit, was the one leading David to introduce these elements into worship. It wasn't David took it upon himself to bring about any kind of innovation, but he was led by the Spirit. But there are two key things to note here. As David is introducing these changes in in the worship of God, first the singing and the playing of the instruments was not carried out by the congregation kind of in mass. David specifically appointed the different families of priests and Levites to fulfill these functions in the worship service. And what's interesting is when you look at the family names uh, that were given an assignment by Moses uh, in, the, in the books of Moses regarding the tabernacle, those Levites especially who were supposed to uh, pack up and carry the, the tabernacle, well, once you have the temple, they're going to need another job because they're not moving around. And so it was those same families that David then appoints uh, to be these uh, singers and the ones who played the instruments in the worship. And the second thing that David introduced, or that uh, David's introduction of these things had the effect on worship, is that like the trumpets of Moses, those other instruments were used in worship only in connection with the sacrifices. And to illustrate this, we have a very significant passage in Second Chronicles 29, where King Hezekiah is seeking to restore the temple worship. There was a long period of, of corruption, and, and under Hezekiah there was a great revival and a restoration of the purity of the worship of God. And so in 2 Chronicles 29, beginning at verse 25, we, re- we read this. And he, that is Hezekiah, stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David, and the priests with the trumpets, Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began, with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. So all the assembly worshipped, the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now I want you to know carefully here that instruments are mentioned four times prior to enduring the sacrifice. 
Right? It's almost as if uh, the, the writer of Chronicles here is, is emphasizing the aspect that there were these instruments present. And who was playing the instruments? And then the sacrifice starts, and everybody's doing what they're doing, and those who are playing instruments are playing their instruments. But then some, suddenly something happens. The Levites sang and played the instruments until the burnt offering was finished. Well, until implies that something will stop. And something did stop. Not only was the sacrifice finished, but the instrument's role and purpose in worship was also done. And yet the worship of God, we see, uh, continues. Even the singing of psalms continued, but there's no mention of worship, or of instruments. Which is, again, it's interesting. Before the sacrifice, several times it's emphasized there were instruments, instruments of various kinds. All of a sudden, afterwards, after the sacrifice was finished, they keep singing, but there's no longer an emphasis on the instruments. Again, this passage is significant because it shows exactly how and when instruments were used. They were used as a way to highlight the sin offering made to the Lord during the service of worship. Now, the Jews clearly understood this role and purpose of instruments in worship. In fact, once the Babylonians destroyed the temple in 586 B.C. and the the Jews were scattered around, we find the rise of the synagogue as the place for worship, uh, for the Jews to gather together for worship. But you see, the synagogue was not the temple. And since God had commanded that worship through sacrifice could only be made in Jerusalem, well, there was no offering of sacrifices in the synagogues. No temple meant no sacrifice. No sacrifice meant no instruments. And so in the development of the synagogue worship, no instruments were used. In fact, they didn't even sing. And even during Jesus' day, once the temple had been rebuilt, of course, the sacrifices resumed, and singing and instruments were restored to the temple worship. But still, in the synagogues that were in the surrounding region, there was no use of instruments in the synagogues because there was no sacrifices in the synagogues. Then, of course, once the temple was destroyed for good by the Romans in 70 A.D., the worship of the Jews no longer involves sacrifices, and in many conservative and orthodox synagogues even today, instruments are still not used in their worship. Well, then what happens when we come to the New Testament and the apostolic era of the church? What do we find in the New Testament about the use of instruments in worship? Well, it's interesting that instruments are rarely mentioned at all in the New Testament. And when they are mentioned, they're general references or comparisons and never in relation to the worship of the church. And so, for example, Jesus and the Apostle Paul both speak about a blast of a trumpet. Again, this kind of relates to that uh, how Moses introduced the trumpet. The blast of a trumpet at the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. So it's a way to announce what's happening. But this isn't a worship service of the church. 
And besides, certainly a good case can be made to show that such uh, trumpet blasts are not necessarily going to be a literal blast of an earthly musical instrument, but rather the heavenly announcement from the booming voice of the angels. But some might object. Well, what about the book of Revelation? Certainly the book of Revelation mentions instruments, and indeed it does, but it only mentions trumpets and harps. So what are we to make of these references? Well, first of all, we must understand that the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy that uses poetic images and languages much like the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so in other words, not everything in the book of Revelation is to be taken in a hard, literalistic interpretation. And so, for example, the trumpet is either a metaphor for a booming voice, as in Revelation 1 verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Or the trumpet, again, is used to announce that something is happening, like the judgments that are listed in Revelation chapter 8. Before each one, there's a trumpet blast. But these, again, are certainly not worship services. And then we come to the harps in Revelation. Also, they also picture the singing and angelic voices, and they're not used as instruments of worship in and of themselves. And so, for example, Revelation 14, verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And indeed, even if they were used as literal instruments, they're being used by the angelic host in heaven. They're not being used by believers gathered together for worship here on earth. And so as we search the New Testament, we find no positive command or warrant for the use of instruments in worship. Well, actually, that's not entirely true. For though there is no positive command to use instruments made by the hands of men in the worship of the New Testament, we do have a command to use the instruments that God has given to his people. Hearts filled with the grace of salvation and the fruit of lips steeped in gratitude for what God has done through Jesus Christ. And so we'll briefly look at two passages where we find these commands. The first is Ephesians 5, verse 19. Paul says, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. But note here, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Here, we're certainly commanded to sing, but also to make melody in or with our hearts to the Lord. Now, the Greek word for make melody is the word solo, and it's related to the word psalm. And literally, it means to pluck the strings of an instrument. So as we read Paul's words here, one instrument is mentioned that we're to psalm or to pluck the strings of. Well, the only instrument mentioned is the heart. And so as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we're to sing and pluck the instrument of our heart in praise to God. Our hearts that have been renewed and transformed by God's grace are to be used to give joyous and sincere, wholehearted praise to God. And then we look at 
passage I read earlier, Hebrews 13, specifically verse 15. The writer to the Hebrews says this, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. In our worship of God, we're called to all, we're called to offer up a sacrifice. But not a sacrifice of bulls and goats as they did in the Old, Old Testament. We offer up a sacrifice of praise. But we remember it was during the time, and, and again, the writer to the Hebrews is very um, aware of this, and using this imagery and the, these words for a reason and a purpose to make this very connection. It was during the time of the sacrifice that instruments were employed in the Old Testament worship. And so what instruments do we find here that we use in connection with our sacrifice of praise in New Covenant worship? There's no trumpet, no cymbals, no harp, no lyre. It's the fruit of our lips. That is words sung to God in praise and thanksgiving for all that He's done for us in Jesus Christ. And so we find here that our hearts, our hearts transformed by the grace of God, and our lips are the two instruments which God commands for us to use and praise to Him during our time of worship. We have no positive command to use any other instruments but these two. But there's one other significant witness to this simple worship that we offer up to God. We've had the witness of history and the witness of the scriptures. But now we have the witness of Jesus Christ himself. See, the Jews, again, clearly understood that the use of musical instruments in worship was tied to the offering up of the sacrifice for their sins. But of course, once they established the temple in Jerusalem, and God called them to establish the temple in Jerusalem, well then that tied the sacrifices, and thus even the instruments, to a very particular place. The temple in Jerusalem. And so if there was no temple, there could be no sacrifice. And if there was no sacrifice, there was no use of instruments, as we noted, was observed in the worship of the synagogues. But as Christians, see, we have an even better reason to not use musical instruments in worship. And it's not because there's no longer a temple in Jerusalem, but because in Jesus Christ, we have a once-for-all perfect sacrifice for our sins. And Christ's sacrifice on the cross not only washes away all our sins once and, for, and forever, but it also brings an end to the entire ceremonial and sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Right? The sacrifices, the, the peace offerings, the rituals, the incense, the altar, the candles, and yes, even the instruments. These are all done away with in Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for us. And what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross isn't to be announced with trumpets or other musical instruments, 
but it's announced by the proclamation of the gospel and the observance of the sacraments, especially, as we'll do here this evening, in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, where we remember His sacrificial death on the cross. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the death of Christ and all its wonderful benefits for His people. Now, again, if you note the language in Hebrews 13 regarding sacrifices and offerings, again, this is Old Testament imagery. But this Old Testament imagery is now being understood in a new and more perfect way because we find throughout the book, even as we find throughout the book of Hebrews, right, we have now a perfect sacrifice has now been offered by a perfect priest and mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this then leads to another important truth. Not only do we have a perfect once for all sacrifice in Christ, but through him, that is, through his being our perfect mediator and high priest, we now offer up a more perfect praise than the saints in the Old Testament. You see, they worshiped God with types and shadows through the imper- an imperfect priesthood who offered up imperfect sacrifices, and they used musical instruments as a way to make their offering more pleasing to God. Again, this is what we saw in those quotes of the early church fathers. The faith and the worship of ancient Israel was immature. It was incomplete and inadequate. They used instruments as a crutch to facilitate their praise to God. We now have the Spirit of the living Christ with us. And Jesus is our perfect high priest, and He alone is the only mediator between God and man. And our worship reaches the Heavenly Father through Christ and in His name. And because of what Christ has done for us, all those washed and cleansed of their sin by His perfect sacrificial blood can now sing His praise. And all those who've been born again in Him by faith can play the instruments of their hearts to God, praising and giving thanks to Him with the fruit of their lips. Because Jesus Christ is our perfect high priest who intercedes on behalf, we don't need crutches to lean on in order to make our worship more acceptable. Because our worship has already been perfected in Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, we worship God simply and sincerely with psalms, God's words, sung without the aid of musical instruments. Not because we want to be odd, and and certainly not because we think we're better than everyone else, but because we desire to be faithful to God's word and how He's commanded us in His word to worship Him. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth is offering the simple praise of a renewed heart with lips grateful for what He has graciously done for us in Jesus Christ. Truly may God alone be glorified by our very simple and sincere worship of Him. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for your word and
your commands and we acknowledge that we we want to serve and worship you how you desire according to your commands and preferences not according to what pleases us and our desires and and creativity and innovation but you have prescribed in your word how you're to be worshiped and we've considered in a previous message about the use of psalms and in this message about not using musical instruments because we now have this perfect sacrifice in the Lord Jesus Christ and so we, we don't need those instruments to aid us in our worship because we have the Holy Spirit purifying our hearts, purifying our lips and our praise. And Lord, we acknowledge that, that is key. Because even though we may worship you in the right way, we acknowledge that all, even that would be in vain if our hearts are not right with you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would truly, by your Spirit, be working in each of our hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself, so that we might truly worship you in spirit and in truth with transformed hearts and with grateful lips because of all what you have done for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is his name that we pray. Amen.